Content warning. This episode contains extreme violence and gruesome details. Listener discretion is advised. A FedEx cargo DC-10 is on its way from Memphis to San Jose when something causes the flight to do many strange flight maneuvers. How did a desperate man and a guitar case almost cause this cargo flight to come to an untimely demise? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And we have... Emily. Again. Hey. It's been a while. Yep. Since before COVID, I'm pretty sure. Mm, no, there was no. one not long after COVID started, but mm. like yeah. maybe June. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I obviously forget very fast. <laughs> Apparently. That's okay. So today we have an interesting one for you. Where everything is structured a little bit differently today because you'll see why. So, that being said, what are we covering today, Nick? Okay, this time we are covering FedEx Flight 705. Thank you to Rich Goon for recommending this. He is a patron. Definitely a top fan. Yes, thank you so much. Thanks for posting the ducks. Yeah, we appreciate the ducks, thank you. <laughs> we'll leave that one alone right there. <laughs> Thanks. All right, so yeah, we're covering, a, we're covering a cargo flight today, which we've only done uh, one more, one other time, I think. Yes, I the, think na- the National Air Flight. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah I think that's it. Wait, was that the last one that you were on? Is no. that the military yeah. one? Yeah. 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 Was it? Wow. Okay. That feels like forever ago. Because right? they were on that TV. Yeah. Sorry, you just get cargo flights, apparently. <laughs> apparently. That's fine. But that's okay. This one will be a little more up uh, the alley you enjoy anyways, we were saying. This happened on April 7th of 1994. This was a Douglas DC-10 30 F. So the 30 was the bigger version of the DC-10. Yes, we're covering a DC-10. And Finally, since our first episode, I think this yeah, is the second DC-10 we It is, covered. and there's a lot more to come, but yeah. The F is for freighter. So this is a freight type Makes sense. of a DC-10. It had the tail number of November 306 Foxtrot Echo, and it had a name, too. Its name was John Peter Jr. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> They, I think it's funny they named her airplanes. Yeah, well, and in with a lot of airlines, at least they named them after, like... Cool things. Well, queens, kings, princes, or places, or, you know, things like that. With FedEx, a lot of them are just, like, names. Like, I was going through the list, and there's, like, Allison, Liz. Everything like deserves John. a name. Liz. <laughs> yeah. Shannon, I think you said. Shannon was one of them. Yeah. They're just, just names. They're just names. That's pretty great, though. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you, FedEx. That's right. So this was to be a flight from Memphis to San Jose. Which makes a lot of sense, because FedEx is based in Memphis. Yes, huge operation in Memphis. If you ever see their their headquarters in their massive facility in Memphis, and every night there's a mass migration of FedEx planes to and from Memphis. It becomes one of the busiest airports in the world overnight. And the flight was to be to San Jose, California. Captain for the flight was to be David Sanders. He was 49 years old. He had been with FedEx for 20 years. I don't have the hours for anybody. We'll get to why that's a thing later. Yeah. Because we we just couldn't find anything. Yeah. The first officer for the flight was to be Jim Tucker. He was 42 years old. He was with FedEx for 10 years at that point. The flight engineer was to be Andrew Peterson. He was 39 years old, and he flew with the captain previously to Paris once, but this was to be the first time that the uh, captain and the and the first officer were going to fly together, which is interesting because having both worked at the company for at least 10 years, you would think that they would cross paths at least once. 
Nope, apparently they have enough pilots that that just didn't happen. Yeah, that does happen. And then there was also somebody in the jump seat. There was Auburn Calloway, who was uh, 42 years old, and he was a flight engineer for FedEx. He was hitching a ride on the flight. The flight crew arrived and prepared for departure. The flight crew were planning for a smooth day trip both ways that should have them back home in Memphis in about 10 hours from their departure. The flight departed Memphis and began climbing for cruise flight westbound toward San Jose. The crew completed the after-takeoff checklist, at which point air traffic control had transferred the flight off to a separate Air Route Traffic Control Center controller. The flight climbed through 19,000 feet. And a short time later, Air Traffic Control noticed that the flight began doing some extreme maneuvers. The plane was suddenly climbing at a 15-degree nose-up attitude, which, at the speed that it was going at, had them climbing very, very quickly. The airplane suddenly rolled heavily to the left in a combat-style maneuver. It rolled all the way over to 140 degrees left bank, so nearly completely inverted to the left. The airplane was suddenly falling in a nosedive. The throttles were in the climb position, which means that they were at a high throttle setting, a very high throttle setting, so the engines were trying to accelerate constantly. The airplane began accelerating as it was nosediving. The plane flew past the 430 mile per hour safe speed margin for the airplane. So basically that 430 mile per hour safe speed margin is where they... If they overspeed that, then they could overstress the airplane. So they flew past that 430 miles per hour. Overspeed warnings began sounding in the cockpit. The plane then crossed 500 miles per hour, which is faster than a DC-10 had ever flown, at which point the speed indicator in the cockpit would have pegged. So in other words, it couldn't go any further. It wouldn't read any higher. The airplane did continue accelerating past 530 miles per hour, however, which had the airplane in an uncontrollable state. The airflow over the stabilizers was disrupted, causing the plane to flutter. If the plane's attitude wasn't changed soon, then it would have broken apart and plummeted into the ground. All the while, air traffic control had alarms about an airplane doing heavy maneuvers as they attempted to contact the flight with no luck. The throttles were suddenly reduced to idle and the airplane began to right back to stabilized flight. So the airplane suddenly kind of you know, as they reduced the throttle, the airplane started to come out at a level flight again. As the plane leveled off, the flutter on the fuselage increased significantly because counterweights in the flight surfaces, be it that the elevators and ailerons and all that, had broken free and the skin on the elevators had wrinkled. A few moments after the plane stabilized, the voice of the first officer sounded over the radio to air traffic control, declaring an emergency, saying that they had an attempted hijacking and that they wanted to return to Memphis. Air traffic control heard this and immediately began to help vector the flight back to Memphis. The first officer then requested ambulances and to alert airport facilities. The air traffic controller did so, then instructed the flight to descend to and maintain 10,000 feet and turn to a heading of 095. The first officer acknowledged and then asked for the air traffic controller to keep talking to him. The first officer then requested armed intervention, which this is a well-known term in aviation for a serious hostile situation. It should never be used unless there is very, very dangerous situation going on, and that means that they need law enforcement to rush the plane as soon as they arrive. The air traffic controller asked his supervisor to notify the SWAT teams at Memphis to storm the plane upon landing. First officer said that they seemed to have the situation under control at the moment. The air traffic controller then handed off the first officer to the Memphis Tower on 119.1, but received no response. The airplane continued to head away from the airport, however, and had not turned to 095, and was not following any of the given instructions. Suddenly, the airplane performed a series of very hard rolls left and right. The air traffic controller continued to try to talk to the plane, this time getting a response from the first officer, saying that he would like a single-frequency approach, so in other words, he doesn't want to keep changing frequencies. The air traffic controller approved this and again handed him back to the tower on 119.1. The air traffic controller then did not hear from the flight for a short period of time. 
short period later, the captain's voice then came over the radio. The flight was expecting to land on runway 9. However, the plane was far too high and fast to land on runway 9. The plane was still flying away from the airport at the time, they heard from the captain. The air traffic controller gave more vectors for landing, and the captain finally gets the flight on a course for the airport. The plane was still more than 18 tons over its minimum landing weight. So, in other words, way too heavy to land. As the plane approached 7,000 feet, it suddenly leveled off for a moment. The air traffic controller contacted the airplane again, asking if the situation was still under control, and the captain did respond, saying that it seems to still be mostly under control. The plane began to descend again. The air traffic controller then cleared the flight to land on runway 9, and reported the wind as 030 at 5. So heading of 030 at 5 knots. The plane was still far too high and extremely fast for landing on runway 9. When the plane was only a few miles from the airport, the captain requested a change from runway 09 to runway 36 left, so a totally different runway heading in a totally different direction. This is a much longer runway and allows more time for the plane to descend and lose speed for its approach. However, they were trying to get on the ground as quickly as possible. The air traffic controller cleared the flight to land on runway 36 left on a visual approach. The landing would still prove to be difficult for the overweight airplane, however. The lineup for runway 36 left was still going to require some hard maneuvers by the plane as well, as it was too close to the airport to perform a normal pattern and approach. The plane made a very hard right turn, going nearly 90 degrees right wing, which had never been seen by a DC-10 before, into a full 90 degree bank. It flew parallel with runway 36 left, and then banked hard left for a 180 degree turn all the way around to line up, for 36 left. Because of the high weight, the flight would have to land at a very high rate of speed. The flight was at 300 feet, doing a hard left turn for final. So they were low, very, very, very low. The engines were already at idle and had been there since 7,000 feet. So in other words, they kept the airplane at idle the whole time, essentially. But the airplane was still going very fast. This was really abnormal. As the plane performed all of these maneuvers, the cockpit was full of alarms from the EGPWS, Ground Proximity Warning System as well as just the normal systems in the airplane saying, you're banking too hard, and all those things. The plane was at 200 miles per hour as it crossed the runway threshold for runway 36 left, which is much faster than a normal landing for a DC-10. Much faster. But because of the high weight of the airplane, this had to be done. There was a lot of concern about the tires bursting from heat and pressure on the touchdown, but the tires did hold up as the airplane touched down hard on runway 36 left. The captain used every bit of stopping power that the plane had, reversers, spoilers, and wheel brakes. The plane managed to stop with less than 1,000 feet remaining on the runway. Once the airplane came to a stop, the emergency crews rushed the airplane, having absolutely no idea of the chaos they would find inside. And with that being said, let's get into the chaos that did go on inside. So now we're going to flip everything for you and blow your minds. Yeah, so you'll remember that he said that when he, uh, the first officer contacted ATC after they were in the air, he had said that there was an attempted hijacking. We're going to talk about that a little bit. So, if you'll remember, there was a fourth person on this plane besides the flight crew. His name was Auburn Calloway. Again, he was 42 years old. He was hitching a ride on the plane, which was a perk for working for FedEx, which means you can just hop a ride anywhere for free, basically, as long as there was no one planned to be in the jump seat. He was working as a flight engineer for FedEx at the time. When he told the crew he was hitching a ride, it was perfectly normal. It's happened to them multiple times. However, no one actually knew Callaway, and none of them had flown with them before. So we talked about that a little bit, even though there were plenty of experience. All of these people had a lot of experience with FedEx. They weren't, they didn't really know each other. Callaway was supposed to be the flight engineer for this flight. 
But he and his crew the day before had exceeded their flight hours by just one minute, so he was not allowed to be the flight engineer on this flight. So he decided to hitch a ride. The flight engineer on the flight, Andy Peterson, when he got on, he noticed Calloway, even though he didn't know him. But he got to his station and realized that the breaker for the CVR had been pulled, which means that the recorder was not working, so he popped it back in. He left the plane, came back on, and it was popped out again. So he popped it back in, and he kept an eye on it before the flight could take off, because it's a go or no-go. As he kept his eye on it, it had stayed in. The, po- the breaker did not pop out again, so the flight was cleared to go to San Jose. So the flight took off as normal. At 19,000 feet, just minutes after the takeoff, Callaway, who was in the jump seat, as we said, had taken on a guitar case. In that guitar case, he pulled out two hammers, which he had brought with him. He did not bring his flight bag because his flight bag was getting fixed. He then proceeded into the cockpit and attacked Peterson with repeated blows to the head. He then tried to attack First Officer Tucker and Captain Sanders. Tucker took a blow to the head and incapacitated him for 45 seconds. So, even though he was conscious, he like couldn't do anything for full 45 seconds. Sanders wrestled with Calloway until he also got a blow to the head. However, this caused uh, enough time for the other two crewmen to wake up and get out of their injured kind of state. As they did that, Calloway went back into the area with the jump seat to get a spear gun he also had in his guitar case, went back into the cockpit, and ordered the crew to sit down. Peterson took a hold of the spear in the gun, which sticks out about four inches out. So he took a hold of the actual spear and him and Captain Sanders wrestled Calloway out of the cockpit. While this happened, Tucker pulled the plane into a steep incline, which gave the other two a chance to wrestle the gun away from Calloway. As you remember, there was this steep incline that they saw that they were going really fast, really steep. Tucker was an uh, ex-Navy pilot and he was a very experienced maneuvers pilot. And so was Sanders, I think. Yes. Yes. Sanders was also a ex-Navy pilot. So both the captain and the first officer were ex-Navy. So the reason why he was doing this is he would, and I'll I'll talk about it in a second, but he's pulling on his fighter pilot experience. I feel like a spear gun was excessive. We'll get into why he chose a spear gun. (laughs) That seems like a lot. Like just grab a regular gun, maybe? Of all the things, a spear gun seems weird, right? Well, and it was a... Particularly a spear gun for scuba diving. Yeah. Yeah. Specifically. Also, yes, to yeah. hijack the plane, of course. <laughs> oh, we'll get into it, my dude. It gets even worse from here. But Callaway was uninjured, and they had really bad head injuries, both Sanders and Peterson. Peterson especially, but we'll get into that later. So, First Officer Tucker did the rational thing, and he put the plane into an inverted spiral roll, which was the where he almost, he basically inverted the plane on the left side. I think they said it was at like 140 degrees. Yeah. Yeah. This and should never be done by an airliner. No. No. It's not meant for an airliner to do. And the reason he didn't go full 180 is because then he wouldn't have been able to see. At least at 140, he could still look out the window and see valuable Yeah. Things. It said in the air disasters episode, he kept looking out the pilot's window to give him a, a, 
a reference point so he knew what he was doing. Because when you're looking out the windshield on a DC-10, it's not the same as a dome in, you know, an, an Air Force pilot or a Navy pilot plane. Right. So... Sanders gets a hit in in the head again by Calloway, so Tucker puts the plane into a dive. So all this time, they're going all the way around the back of the, the, the plane and kind of the holding area between the cargo area and the cockpit, on the walls, on the ceiling. It's kind of the equivalent of a galley on a commercial yeah. plane. Yeah. It's, very, it's not very big, but it's big enough that three men can wrestle in it for an extended <laughs> period of time. But Tucker was starting to lose motor skills he was having motor problems due to his head injury he was hit on the right side of his head so he couldn't move his left side he was starting to get loose feeling on his left side of his body Callaway tries to hit Sanders again in the head but the captain's had enough he takes the hammer from Callaway and hits Callaway repeatedly until he stops moving when that happens everything starts to calm down a little bit Tucker evens out the plane again and calls ATC and we've already talked about the calls to ACC, how he asked for emergency help, how he was asking for them to storm the plane, and um, getting vectors back to Memphis so they can land. However, during this time, Callaway woke up again and was starting to wrestle with the two flight crew in the back. So Tucker kept rolling the plane from left to right, trying to keep his movements unpredictable so that they could potentially incapacitate Callaway. Three and a half minutes after the attack, Callaway is pinned and injured, but will not let go of the spear from the spear gun. So now it's no longer in the spear gun, but he won't let go of it. So Sanders hits him in the head as hard as he can again, so he is subdued. So they ask Tucker to come into the back to help get him basically to a point where they're able to fly the plane again. So Tucker tries to put the plane in autopilot to join the others in the back. He didn't know if he could stand up at this point because his head was hit so hard and the left side of his body wasn't working. He could kind of stand up, <laughs> is the answer to that. So he did so. But the gyros for the autopilot were not calibrated due to the intense forces he had put the plane through. So the autopilot didn't work. So they were flying, but no one was flying the plane. Tucker gets the spear, and he keeps the spear on Callaway, while Sanders, the captain, took over the airplane and went to the front while the others were supposed to subdue Callaway for the rest of the flight. However, due to Tucker's injuries, the spear was drooping because he couldn't feel his fingertips anymore. So, Callaway tries to attack again, but the two crew members end up laying on him, so he has a hard time because he is also now very injured. So, what does he try to do? Tries to gouge their eyes out with his thumbs. Rational. Yeah. Completely rational. Yeah. In the Air Disasters episode, he also, like, screams, get off of me, I can't breathe, etc., etc. But I wouldn't get off of him either. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to die nah. today. trying to attack me? No thanks. I don't want to die today. Yeah. We're, thanks. we're kind of in a plane, and you're trying to attack us. So, on their way back, this is, we heard from Nick earlier, where the captain's talking to ATC, trying to get vectors back to the airport. They have a hard time because Sanders can't see out of his left eye <laughs> due to the injury he had sustained to the head. Mm -hmm. So, but he tries his best, and obviously he does a good job. But right as they're about to land, they're having troubles with Callaway. So Tucker, the first officer, tells Peterson, you're going to have to hit him. 
So Peterson hits Calloway a couple times really hard with the hammer, again, to incapacitate him. However, at this point, they land! Ah, very heavy and very fast, but they land. Blood is everywhere, on the floor, the ceiling, and the walls. EMS are the first to get on the plane, however, they have a problem because they have to climb up the slides, which are supposed to go down. So it's easy to go down, not so easy to go up. EMS has to get handcuffs from the police officers to make sure they can incapacitate Calloway so he does not try to hurt anybody else. They are all then taken off the plane, and to that, I go to Christy. I feel like hijacking a cargo plane is a very interesting choice. We'll get into why he wanted to do that later. I mean, it is a weird choice, but you can still... I mean, we're talking about a massive tri-engine airplane. It's a big... Well, that's fair. Big it was airplane. also very fortunate to have multiple people who were military yes. flying yes. the plane. I feel like that helped. Yes, it yeah. definitely <laughs> did. There were yes. certain levels of combat that I feel like regular pilots just aren't prepared for. Correct. Well, and then because Callaway was also Navy, an ex-Navy pilot, yeah. he had martial arts training. Yeah. And yeah. I'll, I'll get into that a little bit, too. So like, Regular pilots are not prepared for thumb gouging. No. <laughs> That's probably true. Not standard, <laughs> not standard training. I, I was not trained for this. <laughs> the flight crew, having endured fighting Callaway for the majority of the flight, had sustained many injuries. Obviously, shocker. Captain Sanders had deep head gashes and had to have his right ear sewn back on after being torn partially off. Yeah. Ow. Seems fine. Says the person who's had right ear damage. Yeah. Okay. But that was my ear lobe. My ear didn't come off. <laughs> yeah. Flight engineer Peterson had skull fractures, kind of a duh at this point, and his temporal artery was severed. Yeah, he lost a lot of he blood. He lost a lot of blood. Really, really, He was really very bad. close to death when they landed. Um, he was actually the first of the flight crew to be taken off of the plane for that reason. That's good. He almost didn't have a pulse. Great. Yeah. Yeah. You said hammers, right? Like yes. two yeah. hammers. Yes. Yeah, so he has... Were swinging at your head. I'll get into what he had later. Okay. Just clarifying. I have it. I have it. Yes, hammers. First Officer Tucker had it the worst, though. He also had skull fractures, but this led to bone chips in his brain. Uh, in addition to that, his jaw was dislocated and he was stabbed in the right arm. Because of the head trauma, he had motor control difficulties in his arm and leg, and it took three surgeries and years of physical therapy. He had to relearn how to walk, talk, and chew. To date, he has a minor seizure disorder that is treated with medication, but as long as he is on that medication, he cannot fly alone. That he can now not live without that medication. So for injuries, none of this, fl- none of these flight crew were able to fly again after Which this. Which I will get into a little bit more too. Yeah, I just think it's really sad. But here's a first: we're covering one where nobody died and the airplane didn't crash, but everyone was injured. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that's wait, wait, fun. wait. Then how is it on this podcast if they didn't crash? I know. Well, <laughs> mind you, the airplane was damaged. Oh, okay. So long as the, the airplane gets hurt, that's Which, fine. We'll again, get into that. We'll get into that, too. There's a lot of we wills happening. Yes. We will. <laughs> After this short After this short break. And we're back. Okay. So we talked about everything that happened. So let's talk a little bit about the why it happened. So... Here's a little bit of background on Callaway, and we've talked a little bit about this before the break. Callaway was a former Navy pilot, and he was a martial arts expert. He had accomplished many things in his life. He had gone to Stanford for college. 
He was ambitious, and he was a good pilot. However, in the years leading up to the hijacking, he had lost his wife and children, meaning he got divorced in 1990. He was still trying to support them, however, which means he was trying to support his wife and both of his two children, and himself separately, which is a lot of work. And his kids were getting ready to go to college. And he wanted them to go to Stanford. However, that's expensive. And he did not have the money to do that. Like, wife not work support? Or like... It didn't specify. Okay. But it said that he, he was trying to support them. So probably majority of earnings, or at yes. least half. It seemed that way, okay. yes. He was a brilliant pilot, but he got stuck working as a flight engineer for a long time on a cargo plane for a cargo company. He was also close to losing his job for forging flight documents. He was supposed to go to a hearing for it the day after the hijacking happened. He had overestimated the amount of flight hours he had, and FedEx was looking into it. That's bad. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't falsify any documents. They'll find it. Especially your hours. Yeah. Why Please would don't. you over... Like, what's the motivation there? To get the job. To get a promotion. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, you're overemphasizing your experience. Right. Okay, gotcha. Yes, and yes. in aviation, it's a quantified experience right. via hours. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the day of the hijacking, he left his room with important documents sitting on his bed. One of them being his last will and testament. You don't just leave that on your bed every time you leave the house, Miranda? No, no I don't. I don't even have a will and testament, so... Maybe, Maybe you should. Get on. I'm 24. Okay, but you're also a teacher in the age of COVID. I mean, okay. I feel like 24 you're in the age wrong, of COVID, though. But I also don't have that many belongings, so... That's fair. <laughs> so I get yeah, all of it. And she doesn't have children. I also... Yes, I don't. And I'm not married, so... He had transferred a lot of money, to be specific, $54,000, and securities to his wife. Which is roughly like $95,000 today, yeah. by the way. It's a lot of money. His life insurance, however, would have been $2.5 million if he had died in a work-related accident. Dope. Yeah. Cut! He, being the scheduled flight engineer for Flight 705, planned to disable the cockpit voice recorder and crash the plane so his kids would get his life insurance settlement, making sure they could have enough money to go to school at Stanford. Did they want to go to school at Stanford? I don't that'd be know. Really he awkward. really wanted them to, though. <laughs> like, this is a lot of effort to get your kids to go to college where you went to college. It is for a lot. Real. He spent the week before the flight preparing to die, including changing his will with a lawyer. So the will and testament he had on his bed, he had changed the week before with a lawyer. Which, approaching this from a true crime perspective, he was trying to make it look like an accident. Changing your will and leaving it on your bed right That's before? Really, yeah, to no. me, that was really poor planning. So. Yeah. Although I feel like there are many ways to accidentally die that... But it had to be work-related. Well, that's true. It had to be work-related. It did. I feel like that's still a lot. <laughs> he had tried, as we've gone over before, pulling the cockpit voice recorder breaker before they took off. But because he wasn't the flight engineer, the flight engineer, Andy Peterson, kept pu putting it back in. Way to do your job, so Andy. Yeah. <laughs> the really weird thing, and the crew didn't make a fuss about it, and they probably should have in hindsight... But the really weird thing is that he was on the airplane first. He was. And he actually had told them that he had gone in and started, like, pre-flight duties on the flight engineer's station. Which is sketch. Which already, yeah, that's a really... That's already, first of all, very against policy. Also, when that happens, and then, oh, this has popped out. 
Oh, this has popped out again. I'm sure he passed it off as, oh, I'm a flight engineer and I was, you know, I'm, I fly these all the time. I'm supposed to do these things. And it's like, I was just helping you out. I'm sure he passed it off that way. But still, so the crew didn't raise any fuss about it. They were like, well, okay, thanks, but don't. <laughs> like, but, please don't. I feel like more questions should have been raised when the second time the one guy came back and had to put the breaker back. Well, to be fair, yes. he didn't know it was being pulled. He thought it was being popped. Right. Because if it was popped, it means there's probably an electrical problem somewhere on the Which, airplane. in aviation does happen sometimes. It'll pop out, and if you reset it a few moments later, it could pop out again, because if there's a short somewhere in the system, then and it's going to keep popping the breaker. As I said before, it was a go or no-go. So if it had popped out again while he was sitting at his station, they wouldn't have taken off right but since it was being pulled it wasn't gonna pop because right. there was nothing actually wrong right. right he had armed himself with good weapons for this plan a gun or a bomb would have left traces or would leave traces but hammers and a spear gun would most likely not and if investigators found them after the plane crashed it would have been very hard without the cockpit voice recorder to connect the dots Right, you're in a cargo plane, it's full of stuff. If it crashed into the ground, leaving stuff everywhere, then it just looks like stuff from the crash. Yeah. That's pretty gotcha. much what they determined. They were like, it, with the stuff that he brought on board, it just looks like stuff that they carry in cargo all the time anyways. There's yeah. no way to determine. So, with the CBR off, it would have been impossible to know if the crash was a hijacking, even though Peterson, the scheduled flight engineer, kept popping the breaker back in. So, if he did end up accomplishing this they might have had a hard time anyway because Callaway knows he just has to fly the plane for 30 minutes to erase all the evidence of violence in the cockpit because cockpit voice recorders at the time only recorded 30 minutes and then it would start to write over itself and he was a pilot so he did know how to keep the plane in flight for 30 minutes and then he'd just crash it and all the damage to the bodies would be assumed to have happened by the crash forces I feel like the 30-minute thing is very valuable. That overwrites itself. That's super helpful. Isn't it? This changed. This did change. and we Now will... it's like so much. Hold on. I want to say what With we're most doing. airplanes, it's like two hours. Now with some, it's like 20. Which yeah. we will talk more about that next week. Ah, hey. hey. Moving on to the trial. U.S. v. Callaway. The trial took place in 1995, and he had an appeal in 1997. Callaway pleaded temporary insanity, which the jury didn't buy. They were like, no. So, Callaway was convicted of attempted aircraft piracy and interference with the flight crew members, which I put attempted murder, question mark? I mean, Depending on where you look, it I mean, says attempted murder or interference with flight crew. So, I feel like both could have been applicable. You're probably right, but yeah. Yes. So, he was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences without parole. He currently is in a medium security penitentiary, which is Lompoc, in Santa Barbara, California. This is as of June 2020. LOL, JK, that is as of right this second. Okay, cool. (laughs) He is currently 68 years old. You can find this information on the Federal Bureau of Prisons. It is public information, so. He did try to appeal in 1997. Let me tell you why. Due to a call from a FedEx co-worker who lived with Callaway to the FBI about a paper with the flight crew's names on it, the FBI was able to get a warrant to search Callaway's apartment to get some of the initial evidence that they took into the initial trial. They found the document with the crew's names that was called in. They also found a note listing the weapons used, which were 
and I quote, two sledgehammers, two claw hammers, a spear, and a spear gun. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> That's a he, lot of so hammer power. So he had four power. hammers? He had four hammers he had four total. Hammers. He only used two. Which two? The I. It didn't say specifically, but I'm assuming one of each. Um, Seems fine. In the Air Disasters episode, they definitely depicted the big blocky one. And they depicted once. the claw hammer. In, that's actually the one he used initially yeah. to knock him out. Okay. I feel like a sledgehammer is a lot to be swinging around. You are correct. <laughs> <laughs> like, Jesus Christ, Anything, people. to be honest, is pretty much a lot. But I yeah. mean, he was trying to kill people. Yeah, but yeah. when she, she was initially describing it, I'm like... Little hammer. Because you could still kill somebody with, like, a regular hammer. You don't need a sledgehammer. But he brought sledgehammers. He was I very... I don't know why he brought four hammers. You got two hands. Well, maybe one... What if one broke? He wanted to be prepared. Apparently. But then you also potentially give ammunition to your opponents? Yeah. Right. Not if they're broken. They but can't use had... them if they're broken. But, I mean, it still proved that he had thought, actually, a lot of things out. Because bringing those things on board was, like... You know, it, it gave him a lot to work with, and he figured probably he could just knock him out with one blow. Yeah. And that didn't work. No. Nope. That was where his plan went wrong. But but the amount of thought that goes into it definitely works against his plea of insanity. Yes. yes. <laughs> In the end, he never planned on this not working. Yes. So they also found, amongst the other things I just said, two bank receipts, the will that he had left out, and a power of attorney form, which I'm assuming... Went to his wife. Probably. Ex-wife? Ex-wife. Mark. In yeah. a lot of the documentation, it keeps referring to her as the wife. I'm like, guys, they got divorced. Yeah. Ex-wife? Yeah. Well, was it finalized, though? Pretty sure. Or was it just, like, I mean, in the process? I mean, I would assume it was finalized. Yeah. Although, based it was four years later. Yeah. Based on the scenario, you'd be surprised. Based on the scenario, though, I feel like it wasn't 100% like, I want this to be over on both sides. Yeah. Obviously. He seemed a little more invested in the relationship. <laughs> in the relationship. Yeah, yeah. I would agree with that. In any case. They also found a note written by Calloway to his ex-wife, which was on the plane after he was arrested because he brought it with him. Which is another thing. I'm like, why would you do that? Yeah. Yeah, you're planning to crash the plane. As an accident. And, well, if it was a fire, if there was a fire, or if, if the plane was vaporized, that would go away, right? It would. But then, again, we what's the point in having the paper note? that help? I guess, yes. That's true. Anyway. Regardless, leave it for your wife where she can actually read it. If you want to leave it for your wife. You're not wrong. In the episode, they did depict him writing it while they were in flight. So maybe. Maybe it it was more just like a mental, like, I need to get this on paper type of thing. I don't know. We don't know is the answer to that. It's all a little strange. He's he's told as brilliant, but I'm like picking, nitpicking little things. I'm like, you know, maybe you ain't so smart. Maybe you're just a little bit dumb. I mean, he was probably in a really, obviously, bad state. Oh, when you're in his a, yeah. mental when you're health in a, was zero. When you're in a bad mental state, I mean, you just don't necessarily come up with these things clearly. It's also really easy to nitpick any criminal's actions, because it's like, yeah, that was dumb. Yeah. You got caught. That was dumb. That was dumb. Well, now we can say it's dumb. If it had succeeded, would it be as dumb? Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> we wouldn't be having this conversation. Well, if it succeeded, we still might. It just sounds a little bit different. so Callaway tried to get this evidence the evidence specifically from his apartment thrown out saying they took things out of the scope of the warrant that they had but it didn't work they said that someone had called in the specific sheet of paper with the 
crew's names on it, so anything found with that paper, including his will and testament, which, by the way, he just left out in the open, he didn't hide any of this, was clearly within the warrant space to get it, uh... Well, yeah, and if it's in plain view, you don't... As evidence, yeah. yeah. You don't need... That was his fault. He also tried to say that there were no grounds to have the aircraft piracy charged since he never took control of the plane. Because there are four different aspects of airplane piracy. If we really want to go into them, we can look it up on the website that um, Christy sent me. But one of them is that someone takes control of the flight or something along those lines. But the court didn't buy it. It didn't matter that if he crashed the plane or if the plane crashed itself. It would have been in his domain to control the plane from crashing or not. He also tried to rustle control from the flight crew. So it didn't matter um, what his intentions were after the fact. Yeah. Whether you're successful or not, you still attempted to (laughs) hijack the plane. Exactly. So... You did try to, <laughs> to have airplane piracy. She's looking up the four different aspects of airplane piracy. Um, They're in a list. Three. Okay. Four. The offense of aircraft piracy has four elements. <laughs> Great. One, seizure or exercise of control of an aircraft. Two, by force, violence, or intimidation, or the threat thereof. Three, with wrongful intent. And four, with the special aircraft jurisdiction of the United States. So he said that the first one... He technically never got control of the plane, which was why he was attempted airplane piracy. But he did fulfill most of that. And the court was like, yeah, no, we're not taking that off. Best out of four. That's, yeah, you're going to have to just live with that. And they had the flight crew who were alive and well to give testimony and evidence to the fact that he did try to Mm -hmm. forcibly take over the plane. There was a bunch more stuff on his appeal, but basically what I'm going to say is Pill did nothing to change his sentence. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. literally did nothing. He tried to appeal. The court was basically like, no, and then sent him back to jail. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that happens a lot. If you want to look at that at that document, it'll be on the website. Yeah, the entire court case is on legal.com, which is spelled like Beagle, but with an L. Yeah. Legal. If you want to... Uh, I didn't find anything on the original case, but the appeal, the the thing that I will post in the actual uh, blog post on the website will be everything about what he tried to appeal. There was like a lot of information on there about his appeal that I was just like, basically what you're telling me is the court basically just said no. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what you're telling yep. me. And then, um, just for all you court junkie fanatics out there, it has the list of like cited cases and all of that stuff. So, and other cases that have cited this case. So, there's that. Maybe Sandra listens. Go get your education. On May 26th, 1994, a month and some after the accident, the three flight crew members were awarded the Airline Pilots Association Gold Medal Award for Heroism, the highest award a civilian pilot can receive. That's pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. Good Good for them. them. None of the three of them have or can go back to flying commercially due to the severity of their injuries. But Tucker, the one with the seizure disorder, does fly recreationally in his Luscom 8A, which he can do as long as he's not by himself. Luscom's a neat little airplane. And that's good for him. I'm glad he can still fly at least that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of sad that they weren't able to go back to work after that. Mm -hmm. And for the record, none of the three of them thought that they were being heroes. They were just... Trying to not die? Yeah. Pretty much. (laughs) I feel like that's... I don't want to die today. (laughs) And trying to get the plane from killing people. I mean, that's... Yeah. 
As of this recording on September 6th, 2020, the DC-1030 November 306 Foxtrot Echo is still flying. With FedEx. Though it has been modified and no longer requires a flight engineer. After the incident, it had to undergo $800,000 in repairs. And Obviously. Cleaning. Blood Obviously. Everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. It is one of the last flying in the FedEx fleet as they are transitioning from the DC-10 in favor of the Boeing 767 and 777, which Boeing is still building both of those for FedEx, even the 767. Yep. This morning, it was flying from San Juan to Memphis and just landed in Toronto a couple hours ago. Ah. I do find it interesting how, like, if they apply to other jobs, that question of, why did you leave your last job must be very fun. Oh. Oh, man. <laughs> Yeah, well, but- you see, what ha- happened was. <laughs> but they can also have on their resume, you know, the highest award a civilian pilot can receive. I'd hire him. Yeah. You're applying to be an accountant? I'll oh, hire you. <laughs> at the time, they were pretty well known because this was a this drew national attention. It was kind of crazy. It was before 9-11. So this act, if it had been completed to its full intent yes if it it could have equated to similarly to something like 9-11 especially if he had managed to crash into as we get into september season talking about 9-11 a little bit but you know being in september remembering what happened during 9-11 this probably wouldn't happen now due to the fact that flight crews are very much Kept in, uh, they're they're monitored. They discussed this a bit in the episode at the very end, how after 9-11 and after this accident, but, or this incident, I should say, after this incident, especially after 9-11, there's a lot more security protocols even for the crew. And with the crew, they all get very heavily vetted. You know, all flight crews get very heavily vetted. They're, you know, it's some of the, the highest vetted jobs in the world because of its danger. Well, and also the whole reason that he brought a guitar case of all things was because they probably wouldn't inspect a guitar case. It probably just has a guitar. Right. Whereas nowadays, it's suspicious. It's even suspicious. In, even in '94, it was still a little weird. There, well, there, yeah, but there was still security stuff, and it was still that like he could have been, in theory, stopped by anybody, asked to have his stuff looked at, and then. But it was less likely since it was just a guitar case. Right. And it was the only thing big enough to hold a spear gun. And it did not say spear gun inside. Right. That would be hilarious. If <laughs> having a guitar case sticker on top, spear gun inside. <laughs> oh, jeez. Why? Why? Does I swear it say to God, that? if I walk around and I see somebody with that now, and they say I learned about it on a podcast, I'm gonna be like, mm, mm, please don't. Please don't. <laughs> or not. Thanks. To those of you who have submitted stories already, remember we are recording this two weeks in advance. So thank you, basically, to David and Rich. But <laughs> and thank you have, anyway. Who else? Well, we have five stories so far from the two of you, and that's that's actually fantastic. I'm glad yeah. that we have. So the theme for October is spooky stories. Spooky stories. So if you have a spooky aviation story, we kind of had one have one from the podcast uh, in our early early days of recording. Yep. But if you have anything spooky that's happened to you in an airport on a trip somewhere, something strange in an airplane, it can be really anything like scary, weird, unnerving. Tell us, tell us a you know that by the campfire story. 
you'd tell of and the we'll creepy things or weird October things. And we'll have October stories. Yeah. I feel like that'd be really fun. Rich has already submitted one about the wonderful times at DIA. Yes. Yeah. Ah, DIA. He asked us about that, and I was like, actually, can you send that to us anyway? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, your spooky stories, spooky aviation stories for October. Remember, you can always not have your name be mentioned. You could also not follow the theme if you wanted. Yeah, you can just tell us a story. And we'll use it eventually. I was really tempted to put one in about a time that we all went, but as anonymous. Do it! <laughs> you should have done it! Just to see if you like texted me and were like, is this, this, you? Is you. <laughs> is this, this is you. This was me, and this is you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Well, that... now your plan is foiled. Foiled, foiled! Foiled! <laughs> Thanks for listening. This was FedEx Flight 705. You're welcome for the short episode this week. And also the true crimey kind of episode this week. Yeah, you guys are the true crime people. I mean, I listen with you sometimes, just Which, when you're listening and it's on. By the way, part of the reason that this is so short is for true crimey episodes, like the, there's no report. We had no report to go There off was of. zero report for this. We went off of the episode. We went off of Wikipedia. And um, legal stuff. I had like one other source too. I have two other sources. They come from the Wikipedia page. The Wikipedia page is amazing. Oh, um, So. Hold on. Before we end. I had no sources. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I had no sources. <laughs> we listen to a lot of true crime stuff and oftentimes a good source for them is Murderpedia. Mm-hmm. And Auburn Calloway is not on Murderpedia because huh. he, didn't, he, actually didn't, murder. yeah, he, he didn't, didn't actually murder anybody. Anyway. Thank you again for listening, continuing to listen. Welcome, new listeners. This is a weird episode to start on. Go yeah, back. To go back a few episodes. <laughs> yeah. It'll be fine. You'll be fine. We've only covered one other true crimey episode, so. Oh, yeah, that guy. Oh, yeah, that oh, guy. Oh, yeah, that guy. I like that guy. Well, <laughs> there's a piece of that plane that you have seen, actually. I know. I sent, a, I sent you a picture because you yelled at me. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next week. Be smart. Don't be dumb. Wear a mask. Wear a mask. As always, and we'll see you next week. Catch you next week. You know what we mean. <laughs> Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.